Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the podcast where we talk about plant science and all sort of plant-related, science related things generally. Um, we're back this week after being off because I finally got the Rona, but we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> and in fact, we're not going to do our normal sort of preamble where you have to put up with all the things that Yoram and I have done in the past <laughs> week. Because this time we actually have a very special episode. Take it away, Aram. Yes, um, I'm very happy to that we have another interview episode. Um, we've done a few in the past. I, I'm always very excited when we have the chance to talk. To, like, I'm just happy if I have, can talk to somebody else but you wow. two. Wow, <laughs> I can see how it's going, yeah. So who are we talking to today? Uh, t- today um, we're talking to Kat Austin. And I met Kat Austin um, in the context of the Science Hack Day Berlin. I think you gave um, a presentation there and we had a little chat then and then in a past podcast project of mine that i did together with lucy patterson the diy science podcast we actually did already an interview um but not i mean obviously not on the current paper that we're going to talk about today but sort of on your work in general as a diy scientist um you describe yourself as a person i took that from your website and i'm already quite pleased with that self-description um and I like my idea. I got the idea to invite you from reading your paper, but I read the paper b- without knowing that it's you. And I was just like, hey, this is about microplastics and plants, and this is really exciting. Um, and then I had already like t- written down my notes and everything. And then I realized, looking at the author list, oh, wait, I, I know Kat. Like, <laughs> maybe she can tell us about the paper, then I don't have to do that. And that's what, we, what we're doing now. Um, so you are an artist and a researcher. You have performed and exhibited your work around the world, and I'm very happy to have you. Welcome on our show. Thank you very much. It's it's a pleasure to be here and to be joining you again on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I would just like start with my first question. Would you consider yourself more of an artist or of a researcher? Um, these days, I would. Say, I mean, if I need to shortcut explaining myself to people, I say I'm an artist, um, and then I say that my work is heavily influenced by and underpinned by research. And how is it to like how how does it work out for you to work between these two things that some people would call like exclusive? I've I've talked to some I. I, I lightly call them like airheads in science that had very bad opinions about art they were they had Mm. they they were Mm. they were thinking of them in the ivory tower they doing the real stuff and then there's the artists playing around um how do you deal with like dealing with these two two different or potentially different worlds yes i mean you know for the most part um i don't have uh this kind of conflict with myself (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, indeed. I mean, you know, uh, everybody's experiences are very different and not everybody has had the opportunity to work outside of their own discipline, um, or to work with people outside of their own discipline. And so, you know, in those circumstances, it can be a bit difficult, um, for the kind of work that I do, which is um, less legible um, to to be easily understood. Um, and of course, like the kind of work that I do is also very different from a lot of the other kind of 
um, art that is created, right? And so it's a very particular circumstance, the kind of thing that I do. Um, I would say it can still be the case, which I sometimes naively find surprising. It can still be the case that you have people um, who you meet who are in science and who are aware of art and science um, as a thing, but still kind of expect as an artist that what I do most of the time is pick up a paintbrush, um, mm -hmm. which which isn't the case in, in my, for me particularly. <laughs> Maybe to give some context, you can discuss a little bit some of the past projects, oh. some of the things you've worked on um, for those who don't know you. That's a good idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so the, the kind of work that I make um, is all environmentally focused. So thematically, I look at... Um, problem spaces where we're exploring kind of human influence on non-humans and more than humans uh, in broad terms, what we would call the environment. Um, and so the main topics that preoccupy me are the climate crisis and pervasive pollution um, and our engagement with what we call fossil fuels, which um, is rather more kind of an uh, embodiment of long carbon reserves in the environment, right? Um, and I, I'm being very careful about the words that I pick here because, in fact, in terms of concept, that is very crucial to the work that... Um, the work that you found the paper about and also, you know, the rest of my work in general. Um, so the... That's in terms of theme, and then what I do with those topics is I find a kind of um, interesting point in those realms, or an iconic point, or a point that might uh, allow me to better understand this kind of entanglement of human activity in the environment. And then I research it using any research method that I feel I can safely undertake, um, including, you know, sound, uh, sound based research, which is one of my main artistic kind of tools, um, and video research, uh, embodied research in the environment. And then a large part of what I do is also DIY science research. Um, crossing over into kind of art science collaborations, which is when I work with experts, um, scientific experts to explore a question. So I can take it so far with the kind of DIY science methods that I mm -hmm. develop. Um, and then, you know, it's good to collaborate. It's always good to collaborate and get other people's ideas and, and equipment and lab space. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember in the in the past you were working on on microplastics before, amongst other things. And I remember one project. I think it was called Sushi Roulette. Maybe you want to yeah. talk about this because I found this very um, sort of a, a good stand-in for a lot of the, the work. For me, at least as a as a researcher, I found this um, a very approachable project. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean Sushi Roulette. Sushi Roulette. So great project. I did it with um, Gina Shucic from the uh, Ur Institute in Croatia. 
Um, and we, I mean, it's still kind of ongoing in as much as we've never closed it, um, but we carry it out as a, as a participatory workshop. Um, and in Sushi Roulette, we explore methods where we can look for microplastics in fish guts. And we do that in a participatory manner. So we invite people to come and work with us and we dissect the fish, um, remove the intestines. It's all very gruesome and yucky, which <laughs> Gino loves. And, you know, I sort of do it with my hands <laughs> as far away from my body as possible. Um, and we digest the fish guts and then we identify whether there are microplastics in it and we use kind of household chemicals um, to do so. Uh, and then as part of the kind of workshop experience, we then sit and we discuss what that means and what, what we've found in, as a group and we co-create an exhibition, a pop-up exhibition um, using what we've learned and things that we've researched uh, as part of the workshop. And Sushi Roulette then is really, I mean, the grandmother of the project that we're going to talk about today, I would say. Yeah. Have we got then a, a mother or a father in intermediate stage that we should be discussing before we go on to the sort of birch paper today? Uh, yes. Um, so the, the mother stage then would be Unreal Ecologies, which is a workshop that I developed as part of the DIY Hack the Panker program. Um, or So DIY Hack the Panker is a collective um, which works out of Art Laboratory Berlin, here in Berlin. I'm in Berlin. Um, and we are a group of artists and scientists and researchers who explore the river Panka, which flows through Vedding, um, sort of down from outside of the city all the way through to the, um, to the Spree, where it joins the Spree, which is the main river in Berlin. And um, we team up uh, artists and scientists, or artists and artists, or scientists and scientists, and we create new ways of exploring the river and for um, Unreal Ecologies I was working with uh, Nana McLean who is a microbiologist and uh, artist who creates who explores um, microplastics and biofilms and we were working on extracting microplastics from the river um, and looking for how they complex with microbial communities and how they complex with the river ecosystem more broadly. And how did you then step ahead and, and move into plants from fish to microbiome, uh, to the microbial communities and then plants? Well, I was thinking about what microplastics are, you know, and One of the things that's happened through doing all of these participatory um, happenings with people, I was starting to really see again and again and again the, the visceral horror when people discover microplastics in the environment for themselves. Mm -hmm. right? and, and I completely understand it. Uh, and I wanted to move beyond it 
And so part of what I was really interested in doing, um, and this is kind of tied in with uh, what was happening in terms of my work with climate crisis um, at the same time, I was getting to a point where I thought, okay, I've processed a lot of these kind of ecological grief feelings and this kind of horror and terror of what's happening. Um, and I feel that really the next step is acceptance and part of acceptance is understanding how to move beyond the current state of things mm-hmm. um and so thinking about what plastic is you know predominantly carbon um in terms of its chemical composition and quite similar um it's a you know it's a polymer it's fairly similar in in its chemical structure also to other biopolymers like lignin which is in trees um and i remember years ago uh mark decelia from hacteria saying to me well you know the plastics it's a carbon sink isn't it and i was thinking okay yeah you know is it's a carbon sink and if it's trapped if the carbon's trapped in the plastic, it's not going up into the atmosphere. And that's also interesting in terms of trees and in terms of the climate crisis. So I started to think about, you know, how plants were able to exist within this new materiality of like absolutely ubiquitous, completely dispersed microplastic. I mean, thinking about it, all three of us here have never known a world without microplastic. We were exposed mm-hmm. to microplastic before we were born. Mm. And that's the case now for the majority of the world's population. Right? And so that's also true for really a lot of the trees that are existing now, but not all, because they outlive mm-hmm. us. And this is another thing that exploring microplastics and trees allows us to get into which is to say what happens beyond the human lifespan how do we take the humans out of this equation they've generated the microplastic but what happens beyond the human lifespan how are longer lived entities interacting with this extraordinarily durable material and that's where the question sprang from And I conceived it originally as an artistic project, you know. So the the artistic project to which all of this research belongs is called Stranger to the Trees. And it's a multimedia installation which has at its heart this research, this DIY science research. And so I, the kind of central premise is, does microplastic coexist with trees in forests and so I did a lot of artistic research looking into that so I was going into forests I was listening with the forests I was listening from the perspective of the microplastics Um, I was looking for plastic in the forest and taking soil samples and so on Um, and as part of it I wanted to actually have a go at seeing if I could trace the microplastics from going from soil where they would be being found and whether they actually went inside the trees. And this is something that wasn't known um, 
until our paper came out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, you know, we, we know that it's been seen only very, very recently in lower order plants. So I wanted to see if it was possible to detect it also in, in trees. And so, yeah, so I started setting up these experiments and I spoke with my co-authors on the paper about how best to set the experiment up so that we could actually publish something um, valid at the end of it uh, rather than, you know, doing it in an ad hoc way that would mean that I got my microscopy for the video that I wanted to make, but not for not for a paper. Mm-hmm. Mm. Maybe we can give a quick shout out to the paper here. Um, so it's Microplastic Inclusion in Birch Tree Roots. And it's by Kat Austin, who we're talking to now, um, and some other authors. And it came out in Science of the Total Environment at the end of February. So it's a pretty new publication as well. So maybe you could sort of briefly go through sort of some of this methodology, so what you decided to do with the help of these co-authors um, as this sort of experimental setup for this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first thing that was important was to choose the type of tree and we chose birch trees or I chose birch trees because birch trees are known for being able to remediate soils. So um, they remediate soils in terms of metals uh, and also in terms of polyaromatic pollutants, um, which is, I mean, I should, I should preface all of this by saying uh, what we haven't said, which is that I actually trained as a scientist initially. So I was a environmental chemist back in the in the distant, distant past, <laughs> um, and I used to do research on uh, polyaromatic chemicals, which are persistent organic pollutants. Um, so it kind of piqued my interest when I saw that birch trees also, with the help of bacteria, uh, help to break down these um, chemicals. So it seemed to me that birch trees were a good avenue for exploring whether there was any chance for any kind of soil remediation. Um, and because of the fact that they take in a lot of these pollutants, not only would they, if they were to take in microplastics, would they be more likely to survive, but also they're the kind of plants that are likely to be colonising first any contaminated or disrupted land. They're a pioneer mm-hmm. species, and so they're an ex- excellent candidate for this kind of study. From an artistic point of view, they're also an excellent candidate because of the kind of folkloric aspects to what birch means um, and it is interestingly it it corresponds very much with what we know scientifically which is you know birch trees are good for regeneration they're good for purifying they're good for healing um, and yeah and because of the because of the situatedness of the project which was between Berlin and Poland it was also um relevant in terms of that kind of folkloric aspect too because there are a lot of Mm. kind of folklore in in this region so we picked the birches and um started to do the experiment we we designed it as a pilot study so we 
only managed for this part of the study to look at two trees. Um, and I was looking at the kind of plastic that would be good to introduce. We chose polyamide because it's one of the microplastics that's more prevalent in soil. So we know that actually there's more microplastic in soil by between four and to 23 times as much microplastic in soil as there is in water, although the kind of knowledge of that, the public knowledge of, of that is quite limited. Mm -hmm. Is um, that just because in, in water it's diluted more or, or sort of moving quicker and in, in soil it accumulates? It's partially to do with the movement and the vast nature of the oceans and it's partially to do with the fact that actually a considerable amount of microplastic is secondary microplastic that's released just from the breakdown of larger objects in soil uh -huh. some of that portion gets washed into the waterways i mean there's just not that much that's di directly released into the waterways you know there's kind of runoff from washing machines and um that kind of thing but not so not such a great deal um and so there's a portion there's a large portion that is from this kind of breakdown of larger objects um on the earth's surface and then the less dense microplastics get washed out more readily than the denser ones um and i mean roughly speaking and so you get a kind of different partitioning mm -hmm. of which microplastics are prevalent in which system um and we know that polyamide is is quite prevalent in soil and it was possible to source these polyamide beads um between five and 50 microns which is super little um and small enough that we thought it might be possible to um to for them to penetrate into the into the birch roots. Oh, sorry, I was going to ask what, where you got the microplastics for. Is this from? Is this something you can just sort of source that you can, you know, buy them from Sigma or Roche or one of these companies? Yeah, it was. I got them from Goodfellows, um, and you can. Is it a tire company? No, no. it's but it's a it sells a, it's a plastics company. Okay. Um, and it comes as a powder. I mean, when you open it, it's kind of, it's a bit terrifying. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've known people who work with very fine glass needles for micro-injections, and they were also just terrified of the sheer minuscule size of them because they, yeah. they just go in between cells. And yeah. Mm. We uh, had some, some soap, SDS, you know, that was the, the soap powder was very fine. And, you know, if you inhale at the wrong time, you've now got soap in your lungs, which is just the most terrifying thing. So, okay, a little totally. bit scary then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, a little bit scary. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, not, it's just all of the, all of this working with microplastics. It's not super nice, I have to say, although, you know, I was remembering just earlier today that one time when I was uh, doing my studies and as an undergraduate, I got E. coli all over me because a big separating funnel kind of exploded. So, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> I've, I've done the trying to um, push E. coli into a plant leaf and, you know, with a sort of syringe without the needle, but just sort of push it in and 
missing a little bit and having a little bit of back spray. It's <laughs> just oh. like, oh, <laughs> not great. Oh, oh, I mean, you're wearing no. goggles, so it's not going in the eyes, but it's definitely, yeah, <laughs> one of those things. It's also a bit weird from the point of view. I mean, I mean, you have to do it for the experiment, but your whole career has sort of been like, okay, looking at the microplastic, this is terrifying. We don't want microplastics. And now for the point of the experiment, you're deliberately releasing them into the plant, <laughs> you're into the soil. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, that was a, that was quite an ethical conundrum for me, I have to say. Um, and the way that I ended up thinking about it was, actually, we just don't know. We don't know if it's good for the plant or bad for the plant. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that microplastics have an effect on humans sometimes, on other creatures we know that they're terrible for corals because they end up not being able to eat anything because they can't excrete them but for trees we don't know mm -hmm. and i'm gonna look after these birch trees really <laughs> well and we're gonna <laughs> see you know and um and it felt like a very important question you know it was not frivolously undertaken um mm. And part of the reason that I wanted to make sure that we could publish out of it was so that this was not, that we got the most value and knowledge out of the work that was being done um, that was possible. And so, I mean, I have to say, you know, it's a, it's a quite an undertaking to do work that is both artistically and scientifically rigorous at the same time and to have to outputs which are valid in their own spheres and of sufficient quality you know mm -hmm. so it it was a lot of extra work essentially um but I think it was necessary to to make my peace with the fact that I was introducing microplastics to to these plants um and as it as it is you know to up until now they're both doing totally fine, which is great. Mm -hmm. So we haven't seen any ill effects for those trees or for um, or for the other set of experimental trees that we've been working with. So yeah, and also I guess you you put it you had them potted and contained. Therefore, you yeah. weren't just going in a forest spraying around microplastics <laughs> um, no. with a shovel. I mean, like, let's see what happens here. I mean, this would be very irresponsible science. I mean, you, exactly. did, you did the right thing by containing it and then observing the impact on it. Um, so, yeah, before anybody thinks that uh, it's anything close to, like, releasing any... Like, in science, we're usually very much con con um, considering containment of whatever we do. I mean... When we when we can, we do it in a greenhouse. If we can't, we still think about how does the thing that we're doing here stay at the place we're doing it at, and not just um, going wild into the into nature. Absolutely. So you added the microplastic to the soil. How much did you add? Well, first we dyed it. Oh yeah. Um, so that we could trace it with fluorescence microscopy. So. Um, so that we could identify that it was actually our microplastic and not something else that mm -hmm. was going going mm -hmm. in. And then we added, how much did we add? We, <laughs> like percentage-wise, it was 
I, I don't know if I have the, the percentage, but I think I, I read that you, like the amount is um, equivalent Three to grams. what you usually find, right? It's, yeah. It, it wasn't that you sort of overloaded the soil with plastic and then see if it could take it up. It was sort of natural amounts, if That's I remember right. correctly. That's right. It was, um, natural. just checking also back weird. on the paper, <laughs> it was uh, 0.043% by dry weight, yeah. um, which is on the high end of what happens uh, in like what's been detected in uh, in the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But still realistic. Medium like. to high, but still it's realistic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at the soil concentrations of um, pet where next to a, like a pet bottle recycling plant, it can be much, much higher. Mm -hmm. um, and what's interesting is like, yeah, that's where, it's, it was in such an environment that the Idionella bacteria evolved, which has been shown to break down microplastics to carbon dioxide and hydrogen through metabolism. So, I mean, that's the really interesting thing about microplastics in the environment is that you see this, there's adaptation happening all the time, particularly in the shorter lived species, right? Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, one, my my long term question is, what's the long term effect going to be on well, on people and on trees? Of it's equally terrifying that there's this thing is having such a sort of strong selective pressure that you're getting this rapid evolution, but also really fascinating that there is yeah. some adaptation happening, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's yeah, absolutely, and also, I mean, yeah, yeah. I was I was going to say and heartening because it breaks down the microplastics, but actually we don't know that that's necessarily heartening because you're getting a lot. Say say Idionella went everywhere, you get loads more carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Yeah, and also sort of yeah. in, in the intermediate steps, even smaller microplastics. As if I remember correctly, right? Some of them from the physical breakdown usually. If they don't break it down perfectly, then they end up with That's smaller. That's certainly particles. true of the fungi. I think with Idionella, um, it's not so much a problem that they okay. break down to smaller microplastics, but also that they the intermediary um, chemicals that they break down are actually really quite toxic and nasty. Mm. Um, so if it's like an incomplete metabolism, then you're getting, you know, obviously fairly small amounts if it's, um, but of, of these, um, toxic inter intermediary chemicals, if I understood it correctly. <laughs> but then, so you, you, you dyed your plastics, you put them in the soil in realistic levels and then you let the trees grow, I suppose. Yeah. For, yeah for how long for five months mm -hmm. we after five months we took the root samples out um trying to make sure that the tree was going to survive and um and then we took the roots and cleaned them and cut them with a microtome so that um a microtome allows you to take regular uh sized sections of something so we um we mounted them and we put them in the microtome and cut them and then we did some microscopy on them so with uh, joanna mclean uh nana mclean who also did the unreal ecologies workshop with me um and daniel balanzat and gooey 
we did the fluorescence light microscopy and confocal laser microscopy, which allowed us to see whether we were getting fluorescence from the microplastics in the root. Mm -hmm. So this is these very, very thin slices of root from the microtome. So just like microtome is basically like, yeah, just allowing you to take tiny thin slices, which you can then sort of, they're so thin you can see through them effectively um, when you put them exactly. underneath the microscope. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Um, 40 microns. So, you know, just slightly thicker than, than the size of the microbeads that we we're expecting to detect. Oh, yeah, yeah. Something interesting to think about that you don't want to slice through your, your beads and potentially make them even harder to see. So you have to choose a, a size where you can still see them. And then you looked at them um, with the fluorescence microscope and that's where the dye that you put in there becomes important, right? The Otherwise, you, plastics are really hard to see. Uh, they, With most me methods that we have, they sort of blend in with the environments. They don't have a lot of contrast in many respects. But with the dye now, you were able to actually see them light up in your in your cells if they were there. And were they? Yes. I mean, sort of a giveaway <laughs> there. There's a paper. No, we didn't <laughs> find anything. <laughs> we, <laughs> we do have a bit of a bias towards publishing positive results in <laughs> all of that you know like there were no microplastics it's a bit less chance of publishing i think unfortunately yep. yeah so so how how likely were you did you find microplastics in all of the samples or what was the sort of result there no we found microplastic in um in it's well five percent seventeen percent of the uh of the slices right so, I mean, it's hard to say. We didn't section all of the plant's roots, so um, it's hard to say also like how much of the microplastic is taken out of the soil um, in absolute terms. Uh, and we don't know whether the microplastic has made its way up through the plant yet either. Mm -hmm. um, but what we do know from studies from other groups is that microplastic if it makes its way into the roots will also make its way through the plant and into the leaves so it's been observed in you know um, tomato plants also that it will get up into the leaves and wheat and grasses and so on so um, once it's once it's there in the plant system sort of moving towards the phloem xylem system that takes all of the good stuff around the plant um she says in fluffy words and to two no, people this is how know we much describe more it as well plants, <laughs> <laughs> then it gets it, it's been shown that it can be carried so i mean that's kind of the next step i would say would be to see whether it makes it all the way into the plant and kind of pervades the plant um and does it make its way into the leaves and then fall off and it's just kind of a holding system for a season for the microplastics mm -hmm. I, I think we've seen something about lettuce before maybe i think mm -hmm. that was one study we saw like very recently as well like maybe last year and that's sort of the thing that you get a bit more into that sort of scary human zone because i mean with the tomato you think okay but I'm, I'm not eating the leaves it's it's a little bit safer you know maybe the fruit are okay but yeah with the lettuce you're chomping yeah. on those leaves um and I didn't, I didn't think of that other aspect with trees. If it goes into the leaves, those leaves are then falling down again and you've got this 
weird yeah. plastic cycle happening. <laughs> Uh, where in the roots did you find the plastics? Were they just on the outside of the roots, or? Um, and here I'm just hoping that you explain to me some of the um, um, anatomy words <laughs> written in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't remember my own um, studies uh, where they exactly ended up. So we found them. So I'm not the expert at reading the microscopy images. Um, but we found the microplastics uh, between the cells, so we didn't see them penetrating the cells. Um, and we saw them in, in lateral roots, uh, and we saw them kind of heading towards the, heading towards the phloem, mm -hmm. you know, so near the channels, but between the cells. Um, so, you know, you have the, the kind of the skin of the outside, if we're going to stay away from the, um, technical words, you've got the skin <laughs> of the outside, which is like the bark on the outside of the root. And then you've got the soft squidgy bit that's next to it. And then you've got the more woody part, mm -hmm. right? And we saw the microplastics in all of those parts. Yeah, that's again a little bit terrifying. It's just wherever you look, you find microplastics. Seems to be the case with them. I mean, they get everywhere. That's the thing. Uh, do we know how these particles got into the roots? Um, so we didn't look. At, we didn't study it. We didn't track them. But we know that uh, microplastics that have got into lower order plants get into a thing called crack entry mode, which is where the microplastics make their way in through cracks in the root. And we expect from what we've seen in our images that the microplastics are getting in via that route for us as well. Mm. So I guess... I guess kind of the big scary question then, it's a bit negative, but how do you feel after this? Do you feel like we have to worry about microplastics in plants? Sort of what did you think was the, the take-home message as far as level of concern? Well, we don't know. We don't know if it's bad for the trees. We don't know if it's good for the trees. Um, we don't know what it means for humans either what i wouldn't say that worry is the most productive reaction that we could have i would say what we know now is that just as we know that nanoplastics pass the blood brain barrier in humans we now know that microplastics make their way into long-lived plant bodies and that should give us pause for thought um and now is definitely the time to realize the app like the the uh uncontrovertible incontrovertible um impacts of human activity on the environment right and in that respect i would say one thing that we can learn from the story of plastics is well let me let me preface that 
with the fact that you know plastics were um, invented in the late 1800s and really kind of started to boom in the 50s, um, partially because there was a massive drive uh, by plastic producers for a throwaway culture, right? And so disposable single-use plastics absolutely reframed how human, like, Western culture deals with material objects. Um, and as a consequence of that, we've created increasing amounts of plastic refuse, which has problems all around the world. Um, and you see that, you know, plastic refuse is also uh, increasing global inequalities as well, right? So plastics, it's not just an environmental problem. It's not just a problem for plants. It's it's a huge like socio-economic political problem as well. Um, and what we see in terms of the environment and what we see in terms of plants is that the consequences of behavior in the 1950s is now resulting in a material change in the life of plants around the globe, right? And as well as animals and so on. Right? And these are unintended consequences, right? The aim was to sell more throwaway plastic items. The consequence is that we now have trees which have microplastic particles inside them. And it could, for all we know, affect the direction of their evolution just as it's affected the direction of the evolution of the Idiomella bacteria. What we should learn from the story of plastic is that next time we bring something new into the world, we should have a think about what the consequences are and what the life cycle of that thing is. You know, and this is, I mean, the story of the microplastics in the birch roots is probably one of the best arguments I've ever heard of for a circular economy approach to everything. <laughs> yeah. But is this something where plants can help us? You talked a couple of times about remediation as well. Uh, can we now just have the tree suck up the plastic and then, I don't know, uh, maybe not burn them because it releases carbon dioxide, but <laughs> put them underground in a coal mine and have them turn back into carbon um maybe maybe um i think we need to see uh <coughs> i mean there's definitely potential for remediation absolutely for, for phytoremediation but it's going to depend very much on the amount that the tree can take in and the amount that it can tolerate um And it's also going to depend on the consequences for the health of the of the plant, also. Um, but one of the one of the issues with microplastics is that it's difficult to suck them out of the environment now that they've been released, right? Um, and to have them accumulate somewhere where they are not doing harm, and it definitely requires further study, but at least we see that there's the chance that that might be um, 
somewhat addressed by their accumulation in trees. Yeah, I mean, what you do with them then is the question. <laughs> I, I just wondered uh, what happens with the trees uh, now and are there future experiments lined up with them? Do you Will this pilot study turn into a long-term study? So the... The pilot study is closed and we've rehomed the trees. Um, and But we also have a, another study on the go at the moment, which is a longitudinal study, so a long-term study looking at whether there's an effect on tree health of exposure to microplastic in soil, um, but microplastic fibres rather than microplastic beads. So we we wanted to separate the effect of the microplastic in the soil from the microplastic going into the tree. So we're using microplastic fibres, which we don't expect to penetrate the tree roots, for a long-term study with 10 trees where we uh, are looking at whether there's a difference in how they grow. Um, and so that those that experiment's still ongoing and I'm still collecting data for it. Um, yeah. Hopefully this year we'll have enough data for an answer i mean that's great we'll look forward to reading something soon <laughs> i guess so before we we stop talking about the paper in specific is there anything that we we missed as sort of a, a message that you learned um on either the science or art side from this experiment and and set up um one thing that i would say about about this project in particular um is that I found it quite surprising was we showed the artwork um, at the 19th Media Biennial row in Wrocław um, in the summer last year. And it's a multimedia installation. It has an interactive soundscape. Um, it's got this beautiful glass uh, birch tree sculpture with glowing microplastics inside it. Uh, and two two videos, and um, it made somebody cry. Oh wow! Yeah, and that that took me aback. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I suppose for me, the the thing that I've learned, or what's developed for me through through doing the project, is just how complicated um, our relationship with with carbon is, you know, and it's kind of made me think even more about um, the time element of, of our relationship with carbon. And I've taken that forward into other projects as well now, um, because I think it's really important to understand the flow of carbon both in terms of short-term breaths that we have, you know, um, photosynthesis and long carbon cycles where you get carbon being trapped into the rocks and so on. Um, I think it's really important to understand that and then to understand the consequences of our intervention in it. So every time you turn the ignition on a car, what that's undoing. Um, yeah. And that, that resonates through the artistic installation of this work as well um, in terms of, yeah, the soundscape and so on. 
Can you tell us more about the way you represented this then, this project on an artistic level? Yeah, yeah, I can. And <laughs> I'm going to be showing it here in Berlin, opening on, on the 22nd of April, which is uh, Earth Day. Um, and we're going to be showing it until the 9th, 8th, 8th of May. Um, at the Grosse Wasserspeicher in Berlin. So if anyone who's listening is in Berlin or nearby, um, I heartily welcome them to come and to see uh, Stranger to the Trees in installation form. And I will be running um, a new workshop looking for microplastics uh, in air as part of that exhibition programme. Um, the artwork itself is two videos, um, two channels of video with an interactive soundscape and this sculptural um, centerpiece to it. And the interactive soundscape and videos um, work together, so synchronized together with a, kind, a, a compositional piece. Um, and then elements that come in depending on how you interact with the sculpture and the videos. So your location affects the soundscape that you're hearing. Um, and the composition that goes with the two videos. So the two videos, one shows the kind of macro scale processes that are involved in the growth of the trees in the forest. And the other video shows the microscale processes of the incorporation of the microplastic into the trees. Um, and the whole thing is kind of tied together by this musical composition, um, which includes piccolo music, which is quite a vital part of the work because I wanted to learn a, a woodwind instrument while I was growing the trees. I wanted, because they were experiencing something new, I wanted for me to be experiencing and incorporating something new as well. And so I started to learn the piccolo um, with the trees. So I would play to the trees every day um, and they would see my progress and I would see their progress. And we developed this relationship that way. Um, and it brought me closer to uh, kind of empathizing with them and what, what was happening to them. Um, and so the piccolo music is kind of one of the central threads that goes through the musical composition. And then it's complemented by field recordings that I took in forests between Berlin and Wrocław and all around the, the Berlin, the route of the Berlin Wall, the Mauerweg. Uh, around the city, uh, which um, is also a place that's been colonized by pioneer birch trees um, mm. because it's a lot of new, newly freed up land. Um, and all of those are kind of woven together to, to create this story. Um, and then th there are a lot of kind of recordings of mm, dynamic processes involving long carbon reserves. So essentially, you know, the sound of combustion engines, the sound of um, the sound of tires on the ground, the, this kind of thing, um, which come in depending on where you are. Um, and also sort of 70s 
sounds of combustion of trees, crackling sounds, you know, all of these elements weave together to kind of create this immersive experience when you're in with the artwork. I guess I have a bit of a sort of open question. Um, so you sort of mentioned that somebody saw the exhibition and had this very emotional response to it. And I think one of the things is sort of in the traditional thought of, you know, how to do science and how to do art, we think that to do science, you must remove the emotion from science. You know, it should be as objective as possible and it should be about thinking and not feeling. And you're talking about how you've sort of brought that back in in a very powerful way. And I'm, I'm kind of curious what role you think this has to play, especially when it comes to things like, you know, environmental catastrophes and, and conservation, where what what the sort of emotion can bring that we're not getting from, I mean, seeing your publication, for example, on paper and, and how, how the benefit is there. Yeah, I mean, this is... Um this is actually essentially the central question that drives my work and the development of the approaches that I use. Um, because one of yeah, one of the reasons that I started working in a transdisciplinary way on issues of the climate crisis was because I was incredibly frustrated that we essentially have known for decades that we need to do something and we've even more recently had all the tools at our disposal to do it and yet it's not happening so my central question is what more do we need to know and how do we need to know it before we actually take the action that's necessary um and one of the routes that I've been exploring for that is empathy with others in the environment, so non-human or more than human others, by which I mean other species, other ecosystems, other entities that we wouldn't normally recognise um, in in our in in the kind of way that we um, give rights to things I mean things like rivers we're we're now giving rights to which is great you know um one of my previous works was a symphony that I wrote for the arctic ecosystem um in the context of the climate crisis looking at it from the perspective of um human changes and changes to the water so the kind of like how the identity of the water and how the identity of the peoples living in the Arctic were changing in the context of not only of, of the changing climate, but also of the processes that were bringing about those changes. Um, and the symphony was written in order to engender empathy with that entire system, you know. Um, that makes people cry too. <laughs> uh, yeah um come and see my work it's gonna make you cry no um yeah I mean this is <laughs> but it's good yeah I mean whether whether that translates itself into action is is another question right and of course um one of the I would say this is my the way that I'm best at in terms of engaging with this problem but you know it's a problem that everybody needs to be engaging with and giving their best to 
in my opinion. <laughs> um, and, you know, in that way, we might find a way to kind of shift the way that we're living um, so that we're not creating such a problem anymore. But, um, you know, art alone can't do it, but science alone can't do it either. We absolutely need all the information that people are generating, that scientists are generating, all the data that's being gathered. Um, we absolutely also need cultural actors engaging with it to allow, it's a different kind of knowledge and we need a, a complexation of all the different kinds of knowledges that we can generate to understand this massively complex problem and the massively complex solutions that we need to build in order to address it now. That brings me to my question. Is there something, any advice you can give to, give to people who are doing science right now and are maybe interested in exploring art more or already have a sort of artist in them and how they can combine the two? Because I, I, I personally, I would struggle with like where to begin. Is there, is there anything that you can, from your experience, maybe tell, these, uh, tell people who are interested in this? Yeah, I mean, I would say... Everyone has to find their own path. Um, and I'm going to say something very much of a kind of, you know, oversaid thing, which is that if you listen to yourself, um, you will find the right way to express yourself and the right way to um, find how to understand the world for you, uh, which is, you know, true in, in all cases, right? So it's not scientists specific but what I would say that is scientific scientist specific is that you know if you're if it's not just about you and your path um, and it's about engaging with others it's vitally important to that every kind of collaboration is gone into with respect and a genuine will for reaching mutual understanding because Nobody benefits if you're taking the stance of being the person who knows the truth and just telling everybody and not listening back. We, there's no point talking to you then, we can read a paper, you know? Like, it's more, I think one of the greatest values comes from an exchange where people respect each other and are open to exploring new concepts. And even if it sounds kind of wacky, you know, actually you can get to somewhere interesting and new by having these conversations that maybe, you know, spiral out into different directions. But, um, it's, it's not about having expectations of a person. It's about engaging with the reality of, of the person And it can be difficult when you have expectations because of a label that somebody's had put on them or that you've put on them or that they've even put on themselves. Um, and this is reciprocal also for, for artists or other people from other disciplines working with scientists. Um, it's best to try and see the person for who they really are and what they're really interested in and take it from there. I was thinking that also when you said, like, listen to yourself. I mean, sometimes part of that is also drowning out the other voices that sort of are trying to tell you what you should be based on, you know, maybe what your professional role is or what your background is or so sort of 
making everything else be quiet and then listening not just to what you expect to be but yeah absolutely that's absolutely the case a really good point it's very hard to sometimes hear that clearly right um, Yoram, do you have any more questions? Much. I don't have any any further mm. question. I think I I would um, wrap it up here. Oh, I do have I have something that I'd like to say, um, which is I I wanted to mention it when you asked me about what plants can do, um, but actually, yeah, we we just got a, a starts residency to develop a project using diatoms which are plants um as a basis for a vinyl replacement so um i released a new album in january uh which was about a, a landscape which has undergone a lot of uh brown coal extraction and i wanted to release the album in a physical form uh partially because the digital forms also have such a high carbon footprint um, but I didn't want to release it on plastic. Um, and so I teamed up with Farah Peluso, who's another person from DIY Hack the Panker uh, and is a biomaterials expert. And we're developing a vinyl replacement, a biomaterial vinyl replacement on which to press the This Land Is Not Mine album. Um, and so plants can kind of materially help us also in terms of the plastic problem with uh, with be being part of a material that can hopefully be completely circular. So, you know, under the correct conditions can then break down and not leave any traces at all. So that's the hope for Circular Records. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Um, we'll like add a couple of links to our show notes, so also to your record, to your upcoming exhibition for the people in Berlin or in the area that could come here. I am um, uh, maybe there will even be some sort of online representation of it where people from outside of Berlin can can take part. Funny, you should mention that <laughs> because uh, actually, yes, the the showing of Stranger to the Trees is. Um, funded by the Neustadt Kulturfund here for uh, innovative artistic presentations. And we're doing, as well as the physical installation in Berlin, I'm working with an Estonian gallery called Post Gallery Online to develop a completely online presentation of Stranger to the Trees, including a lot of the background research materials as well. Uh, and awesome. that will be released at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, great. Oh, sorry, is there anything else you wanted to plug as well while we're, we're here? <laughs> My performance of the This Land Is Not Mine album on April the 30th, which is also tied in with the same exhibition at the Grosser Wasserspeicher in Berlin. Um, please feel free to come along. Um, it doesn't make people cry. <laughs> it might it might no it guarantees might. can be offered <laughs> and as you mentioned we will also put some links especially to the website there's like some short videos of some of the exhibitions and things also on your website so people should definitely go and spend some hours browsing through your backlog of really cool really cool art science um and have a look there yeah thank you so thank you again kat austin for being with us for like telling us not only about the science but so many inspiring um aspects around it that uh in our like science sciencey world you're often sort of 
fall under the table and it's a shame because it's it's really really fascinating um and uh, maybe I, you can tell me then off mic if I can see these two birches somewhere in Berlin um, <laughs> and visit them <laughs> and and say hello. Um, thank you so much. And yeah, I think that's our show for today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's been super fun. And now we do our little spiel at the end of uh, if you want to reach out and get in contact with us, you can talk to us on social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plants Pipettes. Uh, I'm sometimes on Facebook, but often avoiding that. I'm more often on Instagram. You can find us at Plants and Pipettes. And of course, we also have a website with a lot of backlog um, of some of the articles we've written about various plant sciencey things. That's www.plantsandpipettes.com. Yes, and our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.